So we are in, uh, what, part three or part four of uh, The Endless Grind. And we're talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, how do you guys feel about Ecclesiastes after a couple weeks into it? Any fans in the room? Wow, okay. Nobody likes Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I'll ask, seriously, nobody, you're not a fan of the book? A little bit? Okay, yeah. Uh, how many people don't like Ecclesiastes? You can be honest. We're going to talk about it either way, so don't feel bad. How many people don't care one way or the other? Is that where most of you are? Okay, that's fine. All right. That's understandable. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a tough one. I, I've been rereading it for this series, and it, it um, you know, as I've talked about, I can't tell if the guy's depressed or just too philosophical, but he's somewhere in between the two. I mean, the whole thesis of the book is that everything's meaningless. And as I've talked every week, uh, that can mean everything is meaningless in the sense I, I, there's no, nothing has meaning, or it can mean uh, everything's absurd, which means I can't make meaning out of it, which is probably the more accurate one, and here's why. This guy, uh, I think it's 12 chapters long, 12 chapters, he rants about the meaninglessness of life for 12 chapters. Now, this is not something you do if you're depressed. I've been depressed. I don't rant about anything. I don't get out of bed, let alone write a book, all right? Now, I'm not saying if you're depressed, you can't write a book. I'm just saying that wasn't my experience. But this guy seems to be having fun wrestling with these things. In fact, he says at one point, the best you can do is take joy in your toil and, uh, or the frustrations of life. And that's what he, this book seems to be. He seems to be poking fun at and having a lot of fun. It's one way to read it anyways. Uh, at all of the frustrations and confusion and chaos and meaninglessness of life. I mean, he just keeps going and going, and he captures every element of society, what it means to live in a world that is so frustrating, and specifically related to work. So the first week, we gave you an introduction. The second week, we talked about one of the things that's frustrating about work is that nothing changes, and even if you can change something, it doesn't seem like anything lasts. That's, been, that's frustrating. There's probably some, some things on your mind right now that you wish would change for the better in our world, and there's probably a part of you that feels like they won't. You just name that. The, the second one, also very relevant, is we talked about one of the things that's frustrating about life and work is bureaucracy and corruption and the way oppression plays out in the world and how it goes all the way to the top. This really intense verse that says, you know, don't be surprised when the poor are oppressed because, you know, so-and-so has a boss and so-and-so has a boss and it goes all the way to the king. He says, that's just how life works. And it, that's how it worked 2,000 years ago and it still kind of works today. It always goes to the top. And bureaucracy, politics, oppression, corruption can be very frustrating. It's one of the reasons why we feel like things can never change for the better. Today, we're going to talk about another equally positive topic. How life isn't fair. How life isn't fair. I want you to think about that for a second. Simple question. In what ways have you seen life not be fair? Where have you seen things not be fair? Where life is unfair? Think about that. How have you found life to be unfair? Anything come to mind? What do you got, Delaney? Racism. Racism. What else? Where have you seen life to be unfair? Politics. 
that you, Denise? I know what you're really saying. It's all right. You could say it. I'm just kidding. What else? Where have you seen life unfair? Illness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of the few people I've lost in my life, all friends at this point, have been, I remember the first one. This, this woman I, 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 I did uh, mission work with back when I was in college. We, we went on a mission trip together. She was awesome. I mean, she was going to change the world. Six months later, died in a crash, and all I could think about is how she was going to do so much more in the world than I ever would. That's not fair. The world would have been better if I would have died in a car crash, but she did. It's not fair. What else? Anything else come to mind? Education, yeah, absolutely. You could probably keep listing them. Um, we're going to talk about that today in Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible or if you want to pick one up, you can go there. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you want to use one in the pews, I can tell you the page number. It's going to be uh, 1044, so 1044. Um, 1044 is the page number we're going to look at, uh, starting with Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Uh, chapter 8, verse 14. This is what it says. I think I have a verse on the screen as well. There is something else meaningless. See, he's going through all these things that are meaningless. There's something else that's meaningless that occurs on earth. And he says this, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve, this too, I say, is meaningless. He says that life isn't fair, that what the people who are wicked do, the righteous get their you know, get what they deserve, and what the righteous deserve, the wicked get what they deserve. He, he even says it one other place previously in the previous verse. I don't have this one for the screen. In, in chapter 7, verse 15, he says, In this meaningless of life's, life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. He says, I look at the world, and there are people who do really great things, and they die, and then people who do really horrible things, and somehow they still live. And it doesn't make sense. Now, this language, uh, righteousness versus wicked, we got to understand that um, uh, through the person of Jesus Christ and his teaching in the Gospels, these words are challenged. Jesus makes it clear that, that one uh, might not be as good as they appear, so the righteous might not be as good as they appear, and the wicked might not be as wicked as they appear. That's the majority of what Jesus reteaches in the Gospels. So he looks at the righteous, which would be the Pharisees, and he says, actually, you guys are doing horrible things. And he looks at the wicked, like the woman caught in adultery, and he says, hey, you know, he, the one who is without sin cast the first stone. So he's redefining these categories, but this is Ecclesiastes long before Jesus. And what he ultimately says is we, we get what we don't deserve, and we don't get what we do deserve. But there's one thing, he says, that makes us all equal. The life we live is not fair, but there's one thing that we all share equally. Skip to the chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. He says this. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. And all share a common destiny. It's the one thing they all have in common. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not, as it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes them all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward, they join the dead. 
So he says, nothing in life is fair, but there's one thing that we all have in common, friends. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. There's this movement nowadays that I was introduced to by um, our, uh, uh, a member of our church. Uh, Heather uh, uh, Howell was talking to me about this death-positive movement. And uh, it tries to, and I'm not an expert on it, but I've read a little bit, of it, and uh, it, it tries to reflect on the fact that in our society, we try to keep death behind closed doors. We don't talk about it. Uh, we don't want to think about it. And then we're sometimes blindsided by it. And the death-positive movement is this movement to say, hey, we should probably talk about our mortality. It's the one thing we all have in common. We should probably be honest about it. We should wrestle with it. We should discuss it. We should talk about it. That, that's what this movement is. And that's what this guy, this, that's what the teacher is forcing us to do. He's forcing us to wrestle with the fact that, hey, friends, our days are numbered. Now, he considers, he, he breaks out all of this list. He says, here's all the different people that are different. We like to categorize people. Here's all the different categories. They share one thing. They're all going to die, but here's the categories. He says, first, the righteous. The word here means without fault, blameless, innocent. People who are innocent, it'll happen. He says, the wise. This usually means skilled. It can also mean wise. It's more often translated as skilled. In short, someone who's well accomplished or is very talented. He says, the wicked. This is sometimes translated as criminal. So even criminals share the same fate. He says the good. Um, here, the good uh, can be translated someone who's pleasant or agreeable. So pleasant, agreeable people. Clean and the unclean share the same fate. I'll spend a couple seconds talking about this because this is important. Um, when it comes to the Bible and talking about clean versus unclean, what we're talking about is purity. And, and I've never really understood that, um, even with all of my education. So I do want to share it with you because I've, I'm starting to grasp what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about clean and unclean, what it means to be pure. Purity is almost always related to what you do with your body. And so in the Jewish practice, purity was all about uh, things related to childbirth, things related to sex, things related to what you eat. And all of these could make you clean or unclean based on how you did them. So like in the Old Testament, when a woman gave birth, they were unclean for a season. Um, and issues related to sex could make you unclean. If you ate the wrong food, you could be unclean. A circumcision, whether you were circumcised or not, would make you clean or unclean. And so Gentiles, which probably is the majority of us here, just guessing, um, Gentiles would be unclean for a couple of reasons. One, they often weren't circumcised. So it has to do with purity, what you do with your body. You weren't circumcised. The men weren't. And two, uh, they ate all the wrong food, and the food you ate would make you unclean. Now, we know in the New Testament, specifically with the story of Peter, Peter being the leader of the early church, he has this vision with all of this food, food that can make you unclean. And he's like, I can't eat it. It would make me unclean. And, and do you remember what God shows up and says to Peter as he, he has this vision with all of this food that could make him unclean? If he put it in his body, his body would be unclean. Do you remember what God says to him? He says, um, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And it changes the whole fabric of the church. 
So in the Old Testament and in, in, in Scripture in general, clean and unclean has to do with purity. But one thing we have to understand is that God can make clean something that we view as unclean. But he says whether you're clean or unclean doesn't matter. You have the same, those who sacrifice, those who don't, those who are sinful, those who take oaths, those who avoid them. Everyone shares the same fate. This is captured well in Benjamin Franklin, quote, uh, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Now, you all might look at that and say, well, some people avoid taxes. So really, <laughs> nothing is certain except death. We're all going to die. And that's the teacher's answer to this riddle. Nothing is fair. People don't get what they deserve, but one thing we all share in common is that we're going to die. Now, here's the point. Now, I've thoroughly depressed you. When we boil it down, here's what he's trying to say. We're human. Every single one of us. We all breathe. And that breath is fragile. And if that breath stops happening and you're no longer with us, it's heartbreaking. But that breath won't last forever. We all breathe, we all hurt, we all cry. And one day our bodies will fail us, all of us. And it doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how much you exercise. Although, to be fair, I should exercise a little bit more. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Every single one of us. It doesn't matter whether you're clean or unclean, righteous or wicked, sinful, whatever, the, whatever label you want to put on yourself, it doesn't matter. You're human. You have the breath of life in you, as we call the image of God imprinted on you, and you are human. Or as Shakespeare wrote in one of his plays when he was talking about the conflict between the Christians and the Jews, specifically a Jew who had experienced persecution and oppression and lived in a society where, as a Jew, he was treated as less than human. He says this, I am a Jew, hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, and passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? And if you poison us, do we not die? Every single one of us, and every person you can meet, is a human who's living in this world for a short time. In a world, I should remind you, according to the teacher, doesn't always make sense and isn't always fair, but we're all human, we're all in it together. And when it's all said and done, our time here is short, so we gotta make the best of it. And I think that should filter every experience and every relationship through that. All of those people you love to hate, they're human too. And they live just, in a, just as much of a broken world as you, and they've got ideas that were formed by people that love them, and you might disagree with them, and you know what? They might even be wrong. But they're human. They have the breath of God, the breath of life in them. They have the image of God imprinted on them. And it should filter every relationship and every experience because uh, death is the end of all of us. We can see that the real advantage here is what we do while we're alive. He says that, verse 4, chapter 9, he says, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. 
For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since been vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. At this point in the story of Scripture, this idea of a resurrection or this idea of an afterlife isn't, hasn't, hasn't really been explained. All right, So we believe as Christians on, the, on this side of the cross that, that there's an afterlife, there's a resurrection. But they were debating that even in the time of Jesus. It was the main difference between Sadducees and Pharisees, um, whether they believed in the resurrection. And so at this time, he's operating from the perspective that once, you de- once you're dead, that's it. And so the only hope you have is while you're alive. That's, that's, the, that's the basis of what he's teaching from, and that's what's so important. And here's the thing I want you to hear. Life isn't fair, and there's no guarantees, but as long as you're alive, there is hope. There's no guarantees, but there is hope. It's almost you can have two postures in life. And and, and I hope you don't have this first one. The first posture is you operate from the place that you have certain rights, you have certain guarantees that if you put X, Y, and Z in, you're going to get X, Y, and Z out. And friends, that is not how the world works. I'm not saying that's how the world should work. I'm just saying that's not how the world works. There's no guarantees. That's one posture. The other one is say, you know what? I know there's no guarantees, but boy, I'm going to hold on to hope. I hope this is going to work out. I hope that if I put a whole lot of energy and effort into something, that it's going to pay out and it's going to work out. So he does this little side. He says, the only thing fair in life is death that reaches us all. Nothing else is fair, which means if you're alive, you have the advantage over those who aren't, but that's about it. Nothing else in life is guaranteed. And he summarizes it well in verse 11. He says this, I have seen something else under the sun. Now hear this, this is beautiful poetry. This this explains how unfair life is. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the unlearned, but time and chance happen to them all. He gives all the reasons we have for success. And this, this belief that we're taught that if you do these things, you'll be successful. He says, if you're the fastest, the strongest, the smartest, the wealthiest, you have the most favor or privilege, or you're the most educated. If you have all of those, you're going to be successful. That's what the world tells us. He says, no, it's not usually that. I would say that your chances increase with those. Absolutely. But he says it doesn't always work out that way. So here, I got some bad news for you. And I'll give you good news. You can work and work and give everything to something. So think about the work that you do, especially when it's been frustrating. You can give everything you have to it, and it doesn't mean you're going to succeed. That's the bad news. You can be fast and not win the race. You can be strong and not win the battles. You can be brilliant, uh, favored, important, smart, and still not be successful. This is one of the frustrations with work. And I have had seasons where I put everything into something, and it just didn't work out. I, uh, I had a couple seasons where it did work out better than I deserved. Um, when I first became a pastor, uh, it was a small church, and uh, within the first couple of months, we doubled in size, which uh, puts you on some people's radars, let me tell you. Yeah, you get some recognition. Next thing I know, I was teaching workshops. 25 years old, didn't have a seminary degree, and they wanted me to teach workshops. Why? Because I, I was successful. We doubled in size. Um, and I had a lot of favor in that community. Um, I decided then to, to explore church planning and wanted to learn, so we ended up going to uh, Central Avenue in Athens, where I became the associate pastor, and friends in Central Avenue favor as well. 
I mean, it just seemed like it was easy. It was so easy. Everything I touched just blew up. Our attendance was booming. We had so many college kids coming. A few of you were there. You remember? That was, it was fantastic. I, and, and, and people really loved it when I preached. I got a lot of really positive feedback, and it was always like, I just felt really, really successful. My senior pastor, Paul Reisler, spoke so much encouragement over me and was always telling me what a good job. I mean, it was just like so much favor. In fact, it was so much that this wise old man took me out to lunch, and he said, hey, you've gained a lot of favor here very quickly. What are you going to use it? How are you going to use it? And, and he challenged me with that because it, it was just like palpable. You could just see it. Well, we left there, and I was ready, you know, two successful things under my belt, and I was ready to plant a church, and we were going to just carry that favor with us. And within the three months of launching the church, we had 30 people in worship, and we were about to close. And nothing I did seemed to work. The only thing harder than a season where things don't seem to work out the way you want is, is when they follow a season where they did. You're like, what am I doing different? How is it? I'm doing all the same thing. I haven't changed. I'm doing what I did there, and it's not, it's not working. It was Memorial Day weekend of our church plant, and me and Alyssa were the co-pastors, and we had 20, 30 people in worship at the Grandview Theater. Um, everyone else was out cooking hot dogs somewhere, and we were like, we've got to do something different. This isn't, we're not going to survive the summer. That's where we were. And I began down a season where everything I thought I was good at, I started feeling like an utter failure. I felt like a failure as a pastor, as a church planner, and then it's no surprise to you because I've talked about it before to many of you. Our marriage started to deteriorate, and we got really close to divorce, like really close. And over a two-year, two-and-a-half, maybe three-year period, everything I thought I was good at, including a hus- being a husband, I was failing at, and it didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense. I was doing everything. I was doing everything right, especially in my marriage. Me and Alyssa have talked about this quite a bit. I was doing everything right. I was like, I don't understand why you're mad at me. I'm doing, I'm doing everything. It didn't make sense. And I eventually found myself at this place, and maybe you've been there too, where I was just like, I just like, it didn't make any sense, and I was frustrated with that, but eventually that line became a place of release where I said, you know what? It doesn't make any sense. I just, I'm, out, I'm done. I, don't ha- I can't make sense of it. I don't know how to make sense of it. I'm here to tell you that things have improved. And, you know, what God did in that season in my life was far more significant than all of the other years of favor. I'll just tell you that right there. That what God did in my life over the three difficult years was way more significant to me than when things were going well. And if you've been around long enough, you know that to be true. So the bad news is, is you might put everything into something and it might not work. But here's the good news. You can do everything right and be super talented and still not succeed, which means this passage is good news if you flip it around and think it like this. Just because you aren't successful doesn't mean you're not strong. And it doesn't mean you're not fast. And it doesn't mean that you're not brilliant. And it doesn't mean that you're not smart. You might feel that way because you're not succeeding, but just because you're not succeeding doesn't mean those things aren't true. And I'm here to tell you, if you're in a difficult season in your life and you feel like things aren't working out the way you want them to work out, 
Don't believe the lie. You are fast, you are strong, you are brilliant, you are smart, and being more of those things isn't going to make you successful. The world we live in just doesn't always make sense. Just because you didn't succeed in something doesn't mean you're not talented, and just because you didn't succeed in something doesn't mean you have something to offer. And here's the point. The world doesn't always make sense. It isn't always fair. And things don't always work out the way we want. But as long as you're alive, we've got to make the best of it. And this is the thesis of Ecclesiastes, his conclusion. Verse 7, he says this over and over again about six different times. Verse 7 of chapter 9, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. He says, go make the best of it. Go eat some good food, drink some good drinks, spend time with people you love. But, but he says this over and over again, but in this refrain, he adds something. And whenever you know, he adds something to the refrain, whenever he deviates from the pattern, we should take note. So here he gives a reason why you should go eat and drink. He says, because God has already approved what you do. The word here for approved means to be pleased with, to accept favorably. And his point is simple. We can either believe what God has to say about us or what other people have to say about us. In other words, other people might stand at the finish line of a race and say, you weren't the fastest, you didn't even place. But God's on the sideline yelling, you were so much faster this time, good job. No, that's the difference. God, we, we can look at, at, at our work and say, oh, I wasn't good enough, it didn't succeed. But that's the wrong way to look at it from the very beginning. We have to understand that, that God is looking at what we're doing, whatever it is, if we're putting our best into it and we're doing what we can, God looks at it and says, okay, good job. I'm, I'm pleased with what you've accomplished. It doesn't matter. And that's something I had to learn, especially in my darkest days where I felt like, I couldn't get a win where I, there wasn't a lot of success and, and I, I, I felt like I, I was failing. I had to eventually l- realize that my feeling of failure was rooted entirely on the people I was comparing myself to and what I felt other people were saying about me. And eventually, I had to realize that my goal is not to succeed but to be faithful, to do the next right thing. To be faithful to what God has called me to do just as you need to be faithful to what God has called you to do. And God doesn't call us to succeed. God calls us to obey. To to do the next right thing. So you might get from a teacher a paperback and it says, you know, C, and your parents might say, do better next time. But God is going to look over the answers and how you struggled hard to figure them out and say, you know what, look how much you've learned. Well done. Your boss might pull you into the office and tell you, hey, your work isn't producing the results I want to see. But God's going to pull up a chair next to you in the cubicle and say, you're doing the best that you can, and that's all that matters. Some people might say, uh, see, you struggle with something, and they're going to say, you'll never be able to do this on your own. You're such a failure. And God's going to say, you know, they're right about one thing. I never intended for you to do this by yourself. But you're not a failure. I want you to learn the value of community. I want you to put other people in your life around you to help you accomplish stuff. The only failure is a life lived alone. Other people might look at you and say you're too weak, too young, too feminine, too small, too fat. You're too fill in the blank. But our God is the kind of God that grabs our hands, wipes our tears, and says, you're you. And there's nobody like you, so stop trying to be like somebody else, you have something to offer. 
that no one else does. You have a gift and a perspective and a life. As long as you're still breathing, you've got something to offer. And I believe God is proud when you offer it. I'm, I believe that God is so proud. We have to decide whose voice we're going to listen to, other people or God. And this is an important lesson when it comes to work. If we work in this world, this broken world, world, we'll never be satisfied, and we'll never satisfy those that we try to please. But if we work because we are created to, because it's a good thing to work, as, as one who knows the value uh, that we have to God, well, that changes everything. Paul says it like this, and I'll, I'll end uh, with this. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 3, 23 to 24, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord, as a reward, it is the Lord you are serving. I don't have this verse on the screen, but this is basically what he says in Ecclesiastes. He says the exact same thing. He says uh, nine, uh, it also includes one of my favorite verses in Ecclesiastes, because I think it's funny. He says, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Um, and then he says this, verse nine of nine. Uh, I just think this is funny. Enjoy your life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. I was like, I want that hanging up in my kitchen somewhere. <laughs> uh, this guy's got issues. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. And then he says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever you do, work at it, work at it with all of your heart. We spent a lot of time talking about death today and um, in Ecclesiastes, it talks a lot about death, um, and, and he, he didn't have a lot of hope for the dead, but, but we believe uh, in the resurrection. Every Sunday, we get together to celebrate the resurrection. We're resurrection people, and um, I love this idea that God conquered death, and God didn't conquer death by helping us avoid it or, or putting it, you know, in a room where we don't talk about it or like, you won't die ever. No, we still will die, but resurrection is this belief that God will redeem death. That the worst that life can throw at us, God can reverse it and give us life. And I just say that to say, wherever you are and whatever you're struggling with, we believe in a God of redemption. God can take all of our brokenness, all of our shame, all of our fear, all of our hopelessness, and make something beautiful out of it. And the time it takes for that to happen is sometimes the hardest part, but I believe it to be true. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks for your word, for the ways in which you speak to us, for the hard words of Ecclesiastes, for how you uh, challenge us to wrestle with difficult things. We ask that you would be with us, that you would continue to speak to us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Please uh, stand for our closing song. Mm -hmm.